0: Oh, Meadow Ranch, how we doing tonight? Yes. Oh, man, how was day two, huh? Let's go. Let's go. How many of you all made it over to the snack shop and had yourself a milkshake? Oh i tell you what, I dream about those milkshakes when I am not on this mountain. And my goal in life is to have one of those things tomorrow. And so I didn't get it done today, but I'm gonna get it done tomorrow. All right, how many of you guys did something adventurous today, whether it was high ropes, paintball, any of those types of things? Maybe y'all went for a run. Okay, okay, good. I saw some people out on the running trail today. Yeah, if I saw you, give me a whoop whoop, anybody? Yeah. All right. All right. There you go. All right. So here's what I want to do tonight. Here's what I want to do tonight. Last night we talked about God is truth. And we went back to the beginning when all three members of the Holy Trinity were there when creation took place. And we talked about the fact that God is true, that we can trust his word, that we can trust his promises, because he is not an improving God. He is a perfect God. He is not a God who goes against his word, because his word is part of who he is. He doesn't just possess truth, but he is truth. And so that is what we talked about last night, and what I want to do is I'm going to put hands in to start, all right? All right. Put hands in, because remember, I'm a locker room guy. I love teamwork. I love camaraderie. So everybody put your hands in, all right? So in agreement with the fact that God is truth, on the count of three, we're just going to yell out, yep. All right, so ready? On the count of three, ready? One, two, three. Yep. All right, cool. Awesome. Here we go. So if you guys remember, if you guys remember where we left off last night, There we go. If you guys remember where we left off last night, Pilate comes to Jesus, conflicted, and Jesus looks back at Pilate and Pilate looks back at Jesus and asks a question that is haunting. What is truth? And we're gonna start by looking at John chapter 19 because now what we're gonna see is Pilate goes back out in front of the Jews, in front of the Pharisees, and he's basically beckoning for Jesus's life. He's kind of conflicted because he's like, I I don't really know what to do with this with this man that sits in front of me who seems innocent and, and and is is known as a king, and I don't know what to do. So I'm I'm trying to get off the hook, is what Pilate is thinking. These Pharisees, they really are angry at this guy for some reason, and and, and they want this punishment. But I don't know that I want to be the person that hands out this punishment. And so he's trying to to reason with them. He even he even offers uh, in, you know, in replacement of Jesus's execution uh, to have him be released instead of a, a, a guy who's a known murderer. And, and yet they still yell, crucify Jesus. And now what's happened is, is Pilate has pulled Jesus back in to have another one-on-one conversation with him. In John chapter 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 10. And Pilate is asking him questions and Jesus is remaining silent, not because he doesn't know the answers. He knows all things. He is the word in flesh, but he, he knows the response. But the reason that he's staying silent is because his time has finally come. See, this was part of God's redemptive plan. The word was to put on flesh. The son of God was to put on flesh and come here and do something that we couldn't do and that's live a perfect existence to pay a price that we had earned but we can't pay for ourselves. And so now this guy, Pilate, is asking all these questions of Jesus and Jesus is remaining silent. And in verse 10, Pilate looks at him and he says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you. And Jesus looks right back at him, and he doesn't flinch. In verse 11, this is Jesus' response. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is well aware of what's going on. He's well aware of the master, the father's hand at work in the situation. And what Jesus is above all else is he is obedient to the father's plan, although it may be painful and although it may be costly. I told you I have two boys, and I love my two boys, and we were up here two years ago together. It was the last time that all of us were up here together, and there was no camp going on. It was a really weird time. It was almost eerie for us to be here in June, and there was nothing going on, and we, we just came to a place that we loved because we needed to get out of our, our town that we were living in just for, even if it was just 24 hours, and so we came up to Hume. And I thought, you know what? Going to Hume, what a perfect opportunity to teach my two-year-old son how to fish. And so I grab Cannon, my two-year-old, and and Gunner, who was eight at the time, and my wife, and we go down to the dock right there by the blob. And I'm thinking, this is a good spot. I've seen people catch fish here, and I feel like it's relatively safe because it's flat. And so my boy Cannon will be fine. And I give my little guy a pull, and I cast it out for him because I'm a good dad, and casting's hard when you're two and a half. And, and, And so I watch this little dude. And I know that there's all sorts of these little tiny fish in this pond. And so I start to watch his little pole bounce and I'm thinking, this is the moment. He's going to catch something. This is so cool. I'm like, wife, get the camera ready. Shay, let's get this documented, right? And so he starts to reel a little bit, and I'm all excited because I'm dad, and I'm watching my boy have this monumentous occasion in his life, and he's starting to reel, and he's reeling faster because he's getting excited, and then he pulls this itty-bitty fish. It's like this big, guys, out of the water, and he starts to see it flap around on the dock, and he's like, oh, he, he doesn't really, he's never seen a fish, he doesn't know what to do with it, and I, I don't know really what's going on in his little two, two-year-old brain, but he's, he's taking it all in, and it's slapping around all over the place, and me being proud dad, I'm like, we got to get a picture, right? And so I've got the pole in one hand, and I've got the fish kind of dangling on the line in the other hand, and I'm trying to get it close to Canon. And just so my wife can get a photo op, you know, maybe it's going to be a Christmas card. I don't know. And so I'm trying to dangle it really close to him. And my little boy just keeps backing up and backing up because he sees that little fish get closer and closer to him. And he keeps backing up and backing up. And I keep going, Cannon, don't do that, bud. Don't do that because I'm looking and I'm seeing that the, the, the dock is starting to run out. And I'm like, bud, don't do that, man. This is not going to be good for you. But he keeps looking at the fish, and he's not looking at his dad, and he's backing up. And then before I know it, I I go to reach for him because I see his steps running out, and my little dude's foot goes off the edge of the dock, and he goes, bam, onto the dock and rolls into the water, and I do this. Guys, this is super heroic. Check this out. I got the fish in one hand. I got the pole in the other hand. And I, I toss them down like this and I go, oh! <laughs> <you see> <laughs> hold on, hold on. <laughs> My wife was looking for a different response than, oh! Here, here's the facts though, guys. Don't, don't think I'm a terrible dad yet. Okay. Here's the facts. The, the pond is really murky. And when my little buddy, you know, dove in, he sunk really quickly. And I didn't want to jump in and land on him. I'm a very large human being. And so I'm kind of surveying the scene. I was a lifeguard. Okay. I'm surveying the scene and I'm looking for any piece of my boy and my heart's starting to beat. And then all of a sudden my wife, yells with the most authoritative yell I've ever heard. Get him! And I was like, yes, ma'am. I jumped in with cell phone, wallet, everything. I leaped in, and as I'm flying through the air, it was like a Matrix slow-mo moment. I see the bottom of his little Nike sneaker about six to eight inches underneath the water. And the only reason I saw it was because it was neon green. And so all I'm trying to do with all my might is avoid the neon sneaker. And I land in the water and I reach into that murky abyss and I pull out my little boy. And he's like, oh, oh, and he's just coughing everywhere. And my wife's crying. And I'm crying because I got something in my eye, not because I'm emotional, right? And I look at my boy, and I hold him tight. And then I pull him out like this. And I said, Cannon, are you OK? And he looks at me, and he goes, Daddy saved me. <sighs> And I'm like, yes! Don't you forget it, right? And you can applaud that. (laughs) Yes! But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That's only partly true. Because yes, did I pull my son from the abyss? Absolutely. Did I also put him there? Well, me plus gravity. But yes, I I put him there. And so as fun as it is for me to recall that story and the words that were uttered by my little two and a half year old when I pulled him from the water, daddy saved me. There's also a piece of me that's conflicted because I also caused that. You see, tonight we're gonna continue on the topic of truth, but now we're going to move into something that God has gifted us. That is the truth of Scripture, and in order to do that, we have to go back again to the Old Testament. We are going to look at an Old Testament passage and how God spoke through his prophets long ago about the coming of Messiah. See, in the New Testament, we see God in the flesh. In the Old Testament, it speaks of the promised Messiah pointing 100% to the person of Jesus. And so, if we're going to start anywhere, I want to start in Isaiah chapter 53. So, if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to Isaiah chapter 53. If you land in books like Psalm, Proverbs, you need to go a little bit more towards the New Testament, all right? If you're landing in books like Malachi or Jonah, you need to flip a little bit more towards the middle of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 53, verse one. Isaiah 53, verse one. So while you're getting there, Harrison talked a little bit about Uh, this particular book this morning, he talked about Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah didn't speak on his own behalf. He only spoke on God's behalf. The words that he was to speak, God provided for Isaiah to speak and to pen. And so that is the power of God working in and through this person to get his message to his dearly loved people. God speaks through Isaiah about a lot of things, but really what he's talking to his people about is the solution to our problem with sin, and that solution points to Jesus. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, it says this, "...who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant." And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one, From whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, spitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's six verses that speak about our problem, that God went on a redemption plan from Genesis chapter three to satisfy, because God is just. Yes, he is true, but he is also just, and he can't turn a blind eye to the problem of sin. Sin has to be paid for, but you and I don't have enough in the piggy bank to pay for it, and so when sin enters the world, God knew that sin was coming and already had a redemptive plan in place. And the only one who could do what needed to be done was himself. And so God became flesh in the person of Jesus. And throughout the history books of the Old Testament, God uses normal people like you and I and places words in their mouth to sing of a song of a redeemer of a Messiah. And now what we see as he's sitting face to face with Pilate, we see a whole bunch of people who are in desperate need of a doctor. Why? Because they are sick and they want nothing more than to rid the planet of the one that came to heal the wounds that they have earned. The religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees knew this scripture. In fact, they had memorized it From a young age, they began to memorize scripture, stick it in their minds, and they wanted to recall it speedily so that they wouldn't miss out on the promised Messiah, on the promised one. And here we see those same people yelling crucify him as Pilate is is weighing back and forth. What do I do with this person in his own mind? John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. Just listen real close to this. I'm going to read it. If you want to turn there, great. John chapter 5, 39, 40, it says this. This is Jesus speaking to those very same Pharisees. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I read a, a, a section like that where Jesus is is calling to these people. He desires for the Pharisees to be saved just as much as he desires for the tax collectors and prostitutes to be saved. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Although the Pharisees don't appear lost in the same way that maybe those with the outward facing sins might appear lost, he knows their hearts. He knows that they've become so consumed with with law and ritual practice that they've totally lost sight of who they are meant to worship, who they were designed to worship. He knows their heart. And you have to look at a passage like that and go, how did they miss it? They had this scripture memorized about the one that was going to pay a price that we couldn't pay ourselves. And it all comes down to the fact that Jesus came in a different package than they were expecting. And so they esteemed him not. They desired him to be bruised and broken and afflicted because he didn't meet their standards. He didn't measure up to the truth that they expected. Although he is truth sitting right in in front of them, they missed it. The skit this morning, man, I loved it. I loved what what the team did with the creativity behind this story. John the Baptist, if you missed it, he was on the scene. He was the dirty sheepdog that had fleas. John the Baptist was an interesting character. He was a bridge character between Old Testament to New Testament. He was the one that was calling out in the wilderness. He didn't live inside of the city walls. Why? Because he was rejected by the people that he grew up around. He was an interesting guy, but he had a a specific mission. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey. He had definitely some you know, out-of-the-box style choices, but he did all that he could to take attention off of himself. See, John the Baptist was, was the last prophet of the Old Testament, and in a lot of ways, he was the mouthpiece of the arrival of God's promised Messiah early in the New Testament. Those same Pharisees that are crying out to end Jesus' life are the same Pharisees that put John the Baptist on trial because they looked at him and he didn't fit inside of the nice, neat box that they expected him to fit inside of. So they had questions. They had concerns. They wanted answers. And we see that in John chapter one. If you have your Bible, flip back to John chapter one, verse 19, it says this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Notice who they sent. They didn't just send some new guy in training. They didn't send an intern. They sent the top authority on law and Old Testament scriptures. The Levites and priests from Jerusalem to ask John, Who are you? We don't know what to do with you. You're like nobody we've ever seen. We've seen you baptize people. We don't really know what all that's about, but we need some answers. In verse 20, it says, he confessed. And he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Harrison talked about the fact that that is a direct quote from Isaiah 43. And everybody who was sent to Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist questions knew that scripture, knew what he was saying, knew who he was identifying himself to be. And they were unhappy. John continues on. He continues on to talk about this coming Messiah, the one who he is unfit to even tie the sandals of. When they're questioning him about Jesus and and Jesus becoming more popular and baptizing more people, John says, good, I must decrease so that he can increase. And the Pharisees look at that and go, no, no, no. There will be no decreasing. See, the Pharisees placed so much power, uh, or so much emphasis on gaining power and prestige in society that they look at this John guy and they're like, you're off your rocker, dude. There is no way that you would relinquish your power to some other guy. What is going on here? They do not like that answer. And so they are mad. They're mad at this whole situation. The fact that they've got this guy that eats bugs, that is calling himself the voice in the wilderness that's paving the way for the promised Messiah. And he's pointing to a Messiah that's from the region of Galilee who has no power and has no prestige and has no authority by their standards because he's the son of a carpenter. They think these guys are up to no good, and so there must be punishment, which leads us to the interaction of Jesus, the Word, in flesh, and Pilate. The big question, guys, that I want you guys to wrestle with tonight, and by the way, it is okay to wrestle, right? The big question I want you to wrestle with tonight is how do we know that we can trust God's Word? And, and I look at it this way. I look at the people that I trust in my own life. And there's, there's a few. But I really look back at the person that I trusted first. And that's my own dad. I know that my boys trust me. Why? Not because of the words that they say, but because of the actions that they put forward. When I challenge my sons to do something that's out of the box or uncomfortable for them, as long as they know daddy's there to catch them or pick them up when they fall, all of a sudden they're a little bit more confident in what they're being called to do. And so one thing that we need to do, how do we know God's word is true? I challenge you to consider the source. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God put on flesh, and this Word of God that has now put on flesh is the sum of the Word of God that is written, meaning he satisfies it. Not only is he full of grace and truth, but he is full of all those promises that all of the authoritative scriptures have laid out about this promised Messiah that is going to wipe away the disease of sin. He is that manifestation right in front of people's Eyes, And we have the privilege to read about it, not because it was penned by human hands, but because it was penned by the Holy Spirit working through human hands. See, all of Scripture points and speaks of Jesus, but here's the most important piece, is that it speaks flawlessly and without error. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6 says this, And if you guys can't keep up flipping in your Bibles, please write them down and look at them later. These are good, good words from your Father to you. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6. Every word of God is flawless without error. I love that. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. All of scripture is God breathed, penned through his work, not the works of man, because if it was up to us, we would figure out a way to screw it up. And so he didn't leave it up to us, but he used us through the power of his spirit to write down his words for us. All the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. And guys, there's a lot of them. There are so many promises of God. And Jesus fulfills every single prophecy in his limited lifespan here on this planet. And there are guys who are way, way smarter than me. And they've studied this backwards and forwards. And they can't find any holes in God's redemptive plan, in his redemptive message, in the prophecy about the one that would come that would cure the problem of sin in our lives. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. How many of you guys have ever woken up in the middle of the night? Anybody ever done that? All right. So, you've done that? I'm glad we're all on the same page. So, one night I woke up. I heard this loud sound downstairs, and so of course, you know, I gotta investigate. I like to know what's going on in my house. I like to know what's going on in my yard. I feel like my family depends on me a little bit, even though I may be terrified of what's going on in the dark. I get up, and I start to fumble my way around. And inevitably, what happens in any of these instances where I'm trying to be the macho dude, I end up kicking some sort of little piece of furniture. And you know where it hits? Right in the pinky toe. And it hurts so bad, it hurts so bad when I do that. When you hit that pinky toe, I don't know what it is about that little piece of toe, but when you kick something with it, oh, it brings any grown man to their knees. And that's me. So I'm supposed to be all big and brave, And then all of a sudden, I kick something, I go down, I'm crying in a heap on the floor, my wife turns the light on and she laughs at me. It happens more often than I'd care to admit. Second Peter, verse one, or chapter one, verse 19 through 21 says this, we also have a prophetic message as something completely reliable, not a little bit reliable, completely reliable, the only one that could utter a statement like that is God himself. It says this, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, that means it's the most important thing. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human Spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The last thing that I find fascinating about God's Word that He left for us so that we could learn about His character, His heart, His redemptive plan for us, so that we could fall deeper in love with the Father as the Word does what it is called to do, and that is speak. The third thing that I find super fascinating is the law was kept perfectly by Jesus and all. Uh, its penalties against God's sinful people were poured upon Jesus. He did something that we couldn't do. So therefore, there is no path of righteousness through the law. There is only a path of righteousness through Jesus. This passage that I'm going to share next, is it might be a familiar one, but I really want you guys to think through this one and what this means maybe for you. Whether you've been walking with Jesus as your Savior for years and years and years, or you're brand new to this idea, let me just just share this one with you. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that all Scripture, remember last night we talked about absolutes? Here's another one that is penned for you and I as the Holy Spirit works in someone's heart to record it. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Because of this, we know it's trustworthy and authoritative in our lives. It's, it's God's way of guiding us to what is ultimately good. If you remember back to the creation story, God, the first two chapters he looked upon what he made and he called it good. It was, it was a designation that was reserved for him. And then chapter 3 comes. Sin enters the world. We long to be in the position that God is in. And we look upon his created fruit and we decide to call it good. We in our hearts and in our minds take the place that is rightfully his but God has the guiding hand. He is the good shepherd. He has the path for us that is not filled with rocks and not filled with potholes, but it's, it's, it's smooth. It may not always be uh, lacking trials, but it is always exactly where he desires us to be. And I want to wrap with this passage. So if you guys have your Bible and you want to follow along, I encourage you to in this moment. It's Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, we're going to start in verse and I love this passage. There's very few passages that I've read more in the Bible than this one. This one's near and dear to my heart. It's near and dear to my family's heart. It's something that we turn back to in moments of weakness and moments of strength and I wanna share it with you guys because I know that some of you guys came up here with some stuff weighing heavy on your hearts. I know that some of you guys Believe that there is a God who loves you that that, know there is a a Jesus, a savior that you can call upon and that he will redeem you from your sin. But there's these things that are going on in your world and they keep you awake at night and you cry out to God and you feel as though you're not receiving the answer that you'd expect. You're calling out to God to to cure the cancer, but yet the cancer's still there. You're calling out to God to, to heal the broken marriage between your mom and dad, but yet the marriage is still broken. You're calling out to God to relieve some sort of anxiety that are weighing down your heart, but yet you still wake up and you feel like something's sitting on your chest. You're crying out to God to fix the pieces, to take away the alcoholism, to take away the drug abuse, to take away the verbal abuse. And you cry and you cry and you cry and you feel like there is no response. And I want to invite you into a moment this week where you can be honest with the God of truth because his shoulders are big enough, strong enough and broad enough to carry the things that burden you. He desires to. He wants it. So give it to him. Don't keep it for yourself, letting bitterness and anger well up in your heart, but send it out to him and trust him with it. Why? Because he paid for that. And he doesn't want you to carry it anymore. Philippians 4. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Philippians 4. I love you guys. You're awesome. Philippians 4. Four through eight. Check it out. Rejoice in the Lord always. By the way, this is Paul, and Paul's writing this from a prison cell. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again: rejoice. I'm a big fan of punctuation in the Bible, and whenever I see an exclamation point, I know there's extra emphasis in it. It's extra important. The person that's writing it wants it to sink. In. And I don't think it's by accident that Paul, in this first verse that we're looking at, decided to say rejoice twice in his instruction. Why? Because he knows that there's moments where we're going to need to be reminded to do so, and I think that he's in a moment where he needed to be reminded to do so. Rejoice in the Lord always, not sometimes, always. I will say it again, rejoice. Verse five, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. I love that. It's all inclusive, it's absolute. Do not be anxious about anything. And some of you are, are having a hard time with that statement because there's this anxiety that wells up in you. And I don't know about you guys, but I've done a lot of research on anxiety. I've suffered from some myself. And the, the best definition that I could come up for the word anxious is when one person feels like they're literally being pulled apart from one end to another. Do not be anxious about anything do not be anxious about hardship do not be anxious about trial do not be anxious about not fitting in do not be anxious about the way that you look do not be anxious about what you have do not be anxious about what you don't have do not be anxious about what people think do not be anxious about fill in the blank the scripture in, instructs us to not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. In a world that wants to pull us apart, it's God's desire to hold you together. All you have to do is trust the giver of truth with the things that keep you awake at night or that wake you up early. To trust his word enough to actually do what it says, as if it's not just great suggestions, but it's actual guiding truth to good that only he can define. Even though your world might be consumed with hard things, he is above all those hard things. Jesus said it himself, take heart because I have overcome the world. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, yes. Look, but I don't want you to think that, oh, okay, I'll say yes to Jesus and then everything's just going to be smooth sailing because the scriptures also promise us trials of many kinds. Hardships of many kinds. But here's the thing about our all-knowing, all-loving Father. As he desires for us to grow through what we're going through, he doesn't want us to just sit there stagnant, consumed by the hardships that we face. Final verse, guys. Verse 8 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, by the way, this is how we do that. This is how we have an attitude of gratitude. This is how we rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, then think about such things. And he gave us all this in his holy scriptures and more so that we could fall deeper and deeper in love with a Savior who paid the ultimate price for us and desires for us to walk as a sheep with a good shepherd. Look, I believe in the holiness of Bible because of the source in which it was penned. It's not by my hand. It's without error, and it's useful for teaching and training and righteousness. Do you trust it, my friends? Let's, whoo, come on. Let's pray. Yeah. Lord Jesus, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive and that it speaks to us, Lord, this week as we continue on. May you continue to illuminate our understanding as to how you desire to shape us and mold us into the people that you long for us to be. Thank you for your goodness to us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.